Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Hello, I'm Roscoe Mathieu, pronouns he, him, stranger, and welcome to Solidarity Forever, the history of American labor. Episode 2, Eight Dutchmen and Poles. I wasn't planning on doing a news section in this podcast, but the headlines are too good not to share. Tesla's forays into Sweden are facing a blockade from Swedish dock workers and a countrywide strike unless they agree to collective bargaining. A right that most Swedes have, regardless of industry. And a right that Texas-based Tesla doesn't offer its employees at home. How this shakes out could reverberate across Europe and even back over the Atlantic, changing how Tesla deals with the United Auto Workers' attempts to organize here in America. In Sweden. Nobody ever thinks of Sweden as an economic powerhouse, and here they are, scaring Elon Musk. Speaking of the United Auto Workers, they won their strike after a six-week campaign, gaining 25% raises for all workers, union and non-union, at the big three automakers. Even better, days later, Toyota spontaneously offered 11% raises to all of their non-union workers, trying to head off UAA organizing them. Solidarity forever, folks. Union power gets results. But if you don't want those results to be half measures, you might want to consider joining the union yourself. Choosing the right place to start is always a challenge, but for Solidarity Forever, I think we're going to start at the beginning. Not 1834, not 1799, not even 1776. No, we're going all the way back to 1607, specifically the founding of Jamestown, Virginia, on May 24th, 1607. This is not necessarily the first labor action in what would become the United States, but it is the earliest I can find any evidence for. If you know of an earlier action in Mound City, San Diego, or Onondaga, shoot me an email. Jamestown, as you'll remember from elementary school social studies, was founded by English colonists as the first English settlement in North America, a full 13 years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Thanks to a series of wacky misadventures, including picking a swamp that the native nations considered too poor for agriculture, and arriving too late in the year to plant a crop, Jamestown suffered that first winter. I mean, really suffered. Of the 109 men and boys, no women, and no word on how many were trans men, if any, who arrived on May 24th, only 38 survived to see the next spring. 38! One man in five who didn't succumb to disease, starvation, or the first skirmishes of the Anglo-Native warfare that would define the continent for the next 250 years. While not as bad as the winter the entire colony resorted to cannibalism, that's still, you know, pretty bad. Writing many years later, Richard Potts of the Virginia Council recalled another reason for the impoverished, starving state of Jamestown in that first year. All this time, we had but one carpenter in the country, and three others that could do little but desired to be learners. Two blacksmiths, two sailors, and those we write laborers were, for most part, footmen, and such as they were adventurers brought to attend them, 
or such as they could persuade to go with them, that never did know what a day's work was, except the Dutchmen and Poles and some dozen other. For all the rest were poor gentlemen, tradesmen, servingmen, libertines, and such like, ten times more fit to spoil a commonwealth than either begin one or but help to maintain one. For when neither the fear of God, nor the law, nor shame, nor displeasure of their friends could rule them here, there is small hope ever to bring one in twenty of them ever to be good there. Notwithstanding, I confess diverse among them, had better minds and grew much more industrious than was expected. Yet ten good workmen would have done more substantial work in a day than ten of them in a week. Therefore, men may rather wonder how we could do so much than use us so badly, because we did no more. In 1608, the English took a vote and elected Captain John Smith as the new president of the Virginia colony. While up mapping the Chesapeake Bay, he wrote to the colony's council at Jamestown, When you send again, I entreat you rather send but thirty carpenters, husbandmen, gardeners, fishermen, blacksmiths, masons, and diggers up of trees and roots, well provided, than a thousand of such as we have. For except we be able both to lodge them and feed them, the most will consume with want of necessaries before they can be made good for anything. It's worth noting here that this is the Captain John Smith of the Pocahontas story, who claimed to have romantic and possibly sexual relationship with her when she was barely eleven or twelve. The same Captain John Smith, who waged war against the paw monkey and Pawtuxet nations, and who took, owned, bought, and sold human beings as slaves. The same Captain John Smith, whose writings historians rely on as a primary source of the early years of the Jamestown colony and American colonization. History is messy, and human beings are messier still. In this podcast, I am going to be quoting from primary sources, including a lot of people who we would call not good people in the 21st century, and some people who were not good people in any century. As able, I am going to note the human flaws of labor and the occasional virtues of capitalists. I'm here to describe people, not plaster saints. But I am going to cite them, and quote them, when they are relevant to the history of American labor, such as Smith's letter to the Virginia Council. The council at Jamestown took Smith's advice and fitted Captain Christopher Newport to set sail back for Europe to pick up supplies and the sorts of settlers who could make any use of them. He didn't find any of the latter in England, at least nobody willing to put up with three months of disease, storms, and hardtack to then pay off the pleasure of the trip to a bunch of entitled English gentlemen for the next few years trying to raise barley out of swampland, so he had to go a little further afield. In what are now eastern Germany and Poland, he found them. In complaining about Captain Newport's lollygagging before sailing for Europe, Smith again writes in that same letter to the council, To send into Germany or Poland for glass men and the rest, till we be able to sustain ourselves and relieve them when they come. Eventually, Captain Newport did set sail and return with, in Smith's words, eight Dutch men and Poles, with some others, to the number of seventy persons, etc. Along with, I should add, the first two women to the colony, Mistress Forrest and Anne Barras, 
And who were these guys? Smith again. The hiring of the Poles and Dutchmen to make pitch, tar, glass, mills, and soap ashes, when the country is replenished with people and necessaries, would have done well, but to send them and seventy more without victuals to work was not so well advised or considered of as it should have been. Yet this could not have hurt us had they been two hundred. Dutch, incidentally, here meaning Deutsch or German, not someone from the Netherlands. This was the beginning of American manufacturing. All American manufacturing. In the coming years, after the second and third supplies and through the starving time and beyond, glass and the products that went into making it became America's major export back to the home country. And it was mainly these pointedly non-English tradesmen who were making all that glass, tar, pitch, and potash. To quote another famously problematic early American, Immigrants, we get the job done! By 1618, the colony of Jamestown was thriving and seeking new immigrants by the shipload. They had waged enough war on the native tribes and nations that land was plentiful, but they needed settlers to work that land that had suddenly become available virgin land, and administration to keep all those new immigrants in order. Until now, the colony of Virginia had been run by a joint-stock private company, appointing councils and governors as they saw fit. John Smith's election either accepted fate accompli, or, more likely, exaggerated. On April 19, 1619, that changed. The new governor, Sir George Yeardley, came with instructions for a new order in Virginia, what would be called the Great Charter. Every immigrant who paid their own way, and we'll get into that a little later, would get 50 acres of newly declared virgin land. A governor, appointed by the King of England, would join a six-member council of state and the newly created House of Burgesses, a kind of House of Commons for Virginia, composed of representatives from the 22 settlements and Jamestown. And they would be elected by free, land-owning English men. Only. That meant no indentured servants, no native or other slaves, and no Poles or Dutch men need apply at the ballot box. By this time, in addition to glassware and its industrial components, the Polish and to a lesser extent German craftsmen were producing tar, turpentine, and clapboard. All naval supplies, critical to the young colony, depended on sea trade to survive. So these boys, and it was still all boys, were not only economically important, they were a key part of what we might call military and civil infrastructure, too but they were denied the vote for the upcoming elections of the legislature that would pass the first civil laws governing their new country, specifically because they were of non-English descent. We have no record of the German response to the news, but as 1619 rolled on, about 50 of the Polish craftsmen and their families decided they would not take this lying down. Sometime in late spring, they downed their tools and refused to work unless they were given a vote in the upcoming elections. No tar was boiled, no glass blown, no soap made, no potash stirred. We don't know the leaders of this strike, nor what kind of ethnic and religious hatred they faced from their English colleagues, what internal dissensions they fought, what quiet gestures of solidarity they might have made. We only know the scant records of the time, and none of them in Polish. But we know this, 
They kept their tools down and kept any scabs from picking them up while they were gone. Not that there were many. The Poles and Germans still had to lock on the skills necessary to make glass, pitch, and tar. But it's notable that there is no record of any defections among them, nor of Englishmen who even attempted to take up the vacated trades. Nor was there any violence, at least none that made the official records. Which is also remarkable. One of the easiest ways to break up a strike is to get one of the strikers to throw the first punch, or the first rock, or the first bullet, and justify sending in men in uniform to crack skulls. This did not happen in Jamestown. The Poles kept solidarity, working as one for their right to vote in their new homeland, until the battle for their rights was finally over. In sailors' terms, they held fast. And though we don't know the day those 50 Polish craftsmen laid down their tools and walked, it was not a short strike. Manufacturing in the colony came to a total standstill for months, long enough for word to reach London by sailing ship and come back. A sailing ship made of Polish-American clapboard, tar, rope, and turpentine, of course. In the Virginia Company of London's own words, Upon some dispute of the Polonians resident in Virginia, it was now agreed, notwithstanding any former order to the contrary, that they shall be enfranchised and made as free as any inhabitant there whatsoever. The Poles had won for themselves and their German colleagues and all the continental European settlers in the English colony the right to vote and stand for office. Solidarity forever, my friends. But the companies, the capitalists, decision goes on to say, and because their skill in making pitch and tar and soap ashes shall not die with them, it is agreed that some young men shall be put unto them to learn their skill and knowledge, therein for the benefit of the country hereafter. Because, in 1619, just as much as today, your bosses don't give you anything out of the goodness of their hearts. This was after a fight that the Poles won. The Virginia Company had an eye to drawing more immigrants to the new colony that needed warm bodies to fill up the land and skilled trades to build up the colonies. They weren't lying either when they said they wanted to institute apprenticeships to ensure that those trades and skills would not be lost and be perpetuated to the next generation of Virginians. But recall what Richard Potts said, others that could do little but desired to be learners. He was talking about English settlers, and more of the same who came over in the twelve years since 1807. It's impossible not to notice that the company were requiring their Polish subjects to train up Englishmen in their trades. A steady supply of reliable, skilled labor. You know, in case the Poles ever try such shenanigans again. Every contract, and that's what this was, the first labor contract, is ultimately a compromise. This one, like any contract, sowed seeds that bosses could exploit later to keep labor in its place. But don't let that fool you. This is absolutely a win for the Polish craftsmen, and the Germans, and the rest of the Continentals of Virginia. It also imported the master-apprentice system to America, and I'd like to talk about that a minute, since it forms the backdrop and the culture of labor. Masters, Journeymen and apprentices dated back to the medieval European guilds, which were closer to professional organizations or mutual aid societies than trade unions. Aside from the sick or disabled among their trade, the guilds were mainly concerned with maintaining professional pride and professional standards. If you bought shoes from a certified master cordwainer, for example, 
He knew they weren't going to fall apart in a week. The guild would have blackballed him, and maybe broken his legs, if he brought a bad reputation on the guild of Cordwainers. And part of this was training the next generation in their skills. The apprentice started learning under a master as a kid, sometimes as young as six, usually living in his house and eating at his table or with the other apprentices and the servants as he spent the next decade or so learning the ins and outs of, say, shoemaking, which is a surprisingly complex trade, in fact. Some masters were cruel, others were kind, most were businesslike, but they by and large remembered their own apprenticeships, saw in their apprentices future masters like themselves, and generally held solidarity with these young men and the occasional transman or drag king who did the shit work for them. At the very least, they weren't in open-class conflict with them. When the apprentice finished his apprenticeship, he was made a journeyman, technically free and his own man. The word journeyman breaks down into journey, man, a man who travels or journeys from town to town peddling his trade. And that's what they had done and continued to do in some trades back in Europe. But in the American colonies, the journeymen were, and I'm quoting here from Dubofsky and McCartan's Labor in America, ordinarily bound by contracts that determined the length of employment and forbade them to leave their position until full satisfaction of the contract. The main difference was that they earned wages now, instead of living off the master's table and wearing the master's clothes. But, once the guild had declared a man a master, he could settle down, open his own shop with the guild's blessing, and even train apprentices of his own. Because he'd done enough damn understitches on leather soles for one lifetime, and he wanted to kick it down to some other six-year-old as payment for his ticket to the middle class. And it was middle-class life. These guys weren't the plantation owners, or the military captains, or standing for the House of Burgesses. They worked for a living. They just got to be a little bit comfortable doing it. Learn to read. Eat meat every day. Food with actual spices in it. Sometimes. Because the alternative, at least on the eastern seaboard, was dirt farming, or trying to hustle a day's work as longshoremen, or a carter, or a tobacco picker, and wake up the next morning to hunt for work again and hope the boss wouldn't stiff you come evening. Apprentices and journeymen at least had a roof overhead, usually had a square meal, and always had steady work. We're going to get more into it next time leading up to the revolution, but there were a few peculiar American complexities in this simple picture, complexities that would sow the seeds of organized labor among the skilled craftsmen in years to come. Because... For the next few hundred years, this is a story about craftsmen. We call it the 1619 Polish Craftsmen Strike because it was a strike by skilled labor. Skilled and unskilled labor is a division we're going to see time and again in the history of American labor. Skilled labor refers to what we might today call the trades. Carpentry, masonry, glassmaking, cigar rolling. Specific skills that require more or less extensive training to do right. Unskilled labor, however misleading the name is, refers to day labor work. Picking grapes, bringing in corn, running messages, hawking newspapers. Skilled laborers are what we might now call middle class. Unskilled labor are the teeming masses of the working class. The key difference is in how easily replaceable a worker is. Skilled laborers, craftsmen, tradesmen, can more easily organize, strike, and win, because you can't just find another doctor or another glassmaker 
if the couple dozen doctors or glassmakers in town all go on strike at once. Unskilled laborers are seen, by capitalists, by themselves, and by the public, as easily replaceable. If a couple dozen of them won't work, just fire them, blackball them, cruise down to Home Depot, and hire another dozen desperate people out of the parking lot. Unskilled labor has always had a harder battle to win than skilled labor. That doesn't mean they can't win. American history is replete with unskilled labor fighting like hell and getting their rightful due in the end. But it is harder. And speaking of misnomered unskilled labor, it's time to talk about the one big American peculiarity when it comes to labor history. The one that also started in 1619, on August 25th, just a month after the Virginia Company had declared all those Poles, Germans, and other Continentals as free as any poor Englishman in Virginia. The White Lion docked at the port in Jamestown, a Dutch privateer with a hold full of Africans in chains. They were mostly Angolese from Luanda, captured in war by the Kingdom of Ndogo by a mixed force of Portuguese and Africans in slave raids and sold by the Portuguese for a handsome profit. Although sold in Jamestown as indentured servants, Isabella and Anthony and all their shipmates in that hold are rightfully seen as the first African slaves in America. Unfree labor was an interracial affair at first. Make no mistake, it's always been worse for Africans than Europeans in America. The passage by ship for Europeans was terrible, with morbid death rates. The passage by ship for Africans was nightmarish, and it's debatable if the few who survived were lucky. Indentures had few rights. Enslaved Africans had none. The Europeans were treated as Christians. The Africans treated as heathens. When, as in the early 1600s, the laws applied to both blacks and whites, the laws always landed harder and left more scars on African backs than European ones. There is a continuum of unfree labor. There's a difference between chattel slavery and debt slavery, between debt slavery and wage slavery. Though still unfree, European indentures always ranked higher than enslaved Africans on the continuum of unfree labor. Indentured servants, or redemptioners, were those who had gone into debt to sea captains or Virginia planters for their passage to the New World, and then led in chains to an auction block to have their contracts sold to the highest bidder. Their contracts could legally last up to seven years, after which they were automatically manumitted and free to become unskilled laborers or run away to the West to become poor, embittered white Appalachians. They formed the bulk of early Virginia's and early New England's labor force. After all, the Polish glassblowers were only like 50 guys. But the planters and bosses needed more. Always more. The land and the Virginia Company were hungry for labor, and indentured servitude would never be enough. Which is why I have to imagine that the Burgesses, looking contemplatively at these black Africans, mounting the auction block for the first time, and looking back at those uppity poles and short-term indentures, and the wheels starting to turn in their heads. The Africans weren't Christian. The seven-year limit didn't have to apply to them. They weren't Europeans, and there were so, so many of them in Africa. 
fighting wars and selling each other to eager Portuguese traders. And if peace broke out, why, they could take a more direct hand in those slave raids. In the beginning, black slaves, white indentures, and even white masters worked side by side. But that was for small farmers, the middle-class immigrants who'd paid for their passage and gotten their free 50 acres, or for their sons and daughters. On grand plantations, first tobacco, then rice and indigo, and cotton, slaves raised and harvested the cash crops that made Virginia rich. And along the shores and roads and large farms of Pennsylvania and New England, making the Quakers and Puritan merchants rich, too. They were the same class, the indentures, the poor farmers and enslaved Africans, and socialized together at the same fairs and festivals, drank together in the same pubs and alehouses, and even married and had children together. And it's not like the enslaved Africans weren't smart enough to find ways off the plantation and out of slavery. Aside from the runaways and maroon communities we all learned about in school, Africans taught whites how to farm rice in coastal Virginia, making the rice plantations the largest in the colony, at least for a few decades, and took advantage of the perpetual labor crisis to actually negotiate terms for wages, working conditions, or manumission. In Virginia, in the 1660s, nearly one-third of the African-American population were free people, even legal to vote thanks to the Polish craftsmen's strike 40 years before. But as ships of indentured Europeans tailed off, ships of Africans only increased by the year. Soon, the sons of indentured servants were born free men, and the sons and daughters of black slaves were born enslaved, until the indenture vanished from America, and the majority of American work was done by black hands, scarred by the whip, and bound by iron chains. All this despite the white masters training African slaves to be cordwainers, carpenters, soap makers, and glass blowers. Skilled labor at unfree costs. Nice labor if you can get it. A watershed moment was 1676, 100 years before the Declaration of Independence declared that all men are created equal, when poor whites and indentured servants under Nathaniel Bacon stormed Jamestown and tried to overthrow the Virginia government. Thereafter, the lily-white landlords and burgesses replaced their white servants with black slaves and passed laws that defined slaves as Africans and Africans as slaves. The cherry on top, though, came in the 1705 slave codes that explicitly defined slaves as chattel, no better than pigs or cows, to be held in perpetuity along with their children. Forever. As the new legal reality set in, Social reality followed, with even the poorest whites treated by rich whites and by each other as better than any black person, slave or free. Whether racism created American slavery, or the slave codes created American racism, the bastard was now born and took on a life of its own. The worst stain on the American soul, rivaled only by the genocide of the native peoples, was now indelibly a part of our history and a part of us. Divide and conquer has always been a winning strategy, and whatever role incipient American racism played in forming the institution of American racial chattel slavery, dividing the working-class whites from the working-class blacks was absolutely a part of the planter's logic. Bacon's rebellion scared the piss out of every colonial assembly and governor on the continent, 
And if you could get those indentures and poor farmers and African slaves all working together, no thank you. It was also a way to break what economic power those poor whites had. Slave owners had trained up enslaved Africans to make glass. If the Poles, or their apprentices, set down their tools again, the Virginia Company and its representatives and the Burgesses and the plantation owners, in a word, the bosses, could just whip their slaves into making the glass instead and business could carry on, leaving the Polish craftsmen out in the cold. Recent revisionist history, to the contrary, skilled trades enslaved Africans were taught weren't going to be much use to them, on account of the whole, you know, being enslaved part. This, essentially, is how rich whites have used African Americans, in every sense of the word, through the Civil War and beyond. As a bonus, with the unfair treatment of the poor whites for their skin color and the growth of racism in the white middle and working classes, the poor whites and craftsmen who would form the labor movement in America would never trust or include the black population, creating a permanent rift for future bosses to exploit. In American labor history, this manifests as truly ugly exclusion of black workers from most of the 19th century and lingering suspicion and outright violence of African Americans as scabs, saboteurs, and stooges of the white bosses well into the 20th century perpetuating a cycle where blacks could not trust white labor and white labor could not trust blacks. This was the norm, and it's always exceptional to see those labor figures who fought against it, even when they lost. The early easy relations, working, smoking, socializing, making love, building families together, between the poor whites and the enslaved and free blacks is a tantalizing glimpse into an America that might have been, but sadly, never was. And both whites and blacks have lost by it, even up to 2023 and beyond. We've got the labor history and the racist history that we've got. If you don't like it, go make some labor history of your own. Next time, we're taking a tour of labor in colonial America, its peculiarities and foibles, its similarities and differences to European labor conditions, and looking at the seeds of organized labor, and what made American labor history the bloodiest class conflict of them all. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the